Hello and welcome to Art Then and Now. My name is Anna Gammons and this is the show about art throughout time. Hope you've all had a lovely week. This week's interview, I caught up with visual arts editor, the people's critic and self-confessed art addict, Tabish Khan, as he will be judging the ING Discerning Eye Open Exhibition, which is taking place this autumn in 2020. We are going to give you all of the details on how you can apply so listen out for that information at the end if you would like to be part of the exhibition which you definitely should now the only shame about our interview is the fact that it is an audio platform not a visual one and you cannot see the shirt that tabish was wearing oh my goodness he looked like a piece of art in himself it was the best thing i've ever seen i reference it uh, at least twice more during our interview <laughs> we had a really lovely time talking and catching up about the exhibition that he's going to be judging and tabish's ideas on keeping art accessible so here is the wonderful Tabish Khan. I am here with Tabish, otherwise known as the People's Art Critic. He is a visual arts editor for Londonist, and you're going to be a judge for the ING Discerning Eye Open Exhibition 2020. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. <laughs> That's quite the introduction I gave you. You do so many things. <laughs> Always um, open to more. Can you tell us a little bit about your role as a writer and critic, just so the listeners can get to know you a bit before I start picking your brain on this exhibition? Sure. Um, so my name is Tabish Khan. I'm the visual arts editor at the website Londonist, which is a website about everything that's going on in London. So I look after our coverage of galleries and museums. I also write for another website called fad, fadmagazine.com. And there I have a weekly top five of exhibitions and a column called What's Wrong With Art, where I look at um, the certain foibles of the art world and look to expose them and how we can improve them. And finally, I'm a trustee of ArtCan, an artist cooperative, a not-for-profit that supports artists through exhibitions and other profile raising activities. You are so democratic in your approach to art, and I really, really enjoy that. Tavish is known as the people's art critic, which I think is really cool. And you're also known for trying to make art accessible. So I'd like to talk through some ideas on that, if you can. Yeah, that would be great. I think what helps is that my background is not from art. So I've got a corporate background. I didn't really discover art until I was in my mid-20s. So I started off working in a corporate world, I'd only been to museums and galleries through school trips. I don't have an arty family, so I was commuting to work, as everyone does on the London Underground, not so much these days because of COVID, but um, I would look up and I'd see these posters for exhibitions at Tate, Royal Academy, National Gallery, and I thought, I don't know anything about this world. Maybe that's something I should look to do in my spare time. So I went, I started enjoying it, a uh, cousin said, why don't you write a blog? And I did. And then I tried to pitch at someone. Londonist was the first pers- person I pitched at. And they took me on. And eight years later, I'm their visual arts editor. And my reviews now occasionally feature on those same tube posters that started my journey. So it's great that it's come full circle. Oh, my goodness. That's very impressive. And also... Love the fact that it started so organically with you just wanting to expand your understanding about art. And this is so much of who you are now. Definitely. And I I do really enjoy it. And I haven't got bored of it after eight years, which is a sign that I do really love it. Uh, but, But the thing about this organic journey is I hate the fact that it's rare. 
I hate the fact that it's rare for someone to think, oh, art looks interesting, and then make it a big part of their life. It doesn't have to be their career. I even mean sort of like a hobby, going to see exhibitions. And I don't think it should be, because I think of all the, for want of a better phrase, tabish Khans in waiting who are out there looking at those same tube posters, thinking, you know what, I've never really got art. Maybe I should go to exhibitions. And yet there still seems to be a barrier, because if you look at the numbers of people who go to galleries and museums regularly, it's nowhere near the level of people who go, say, watch TV or go to the cinema. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, absolutely and I also just from background information I know about you know that you go to it's something crazy like five ex- like how many exhibitions a day slash week do you manage to find yourself at yeah so um, I was talking about this with uh, some friends and I estimated that I see a thousand <laughs> exhibitions a year and I thought well that's that's a bold claim and if you're going to make such a claim you might want to back that up with a bit of factual research. So for the year of 2019 I decided to keep a tally of every exhibition I'd been to um, and by the end of 2019 my number was 1,168. I mean that's... So it was Did you find that you were going to more though? You were trying to prove a point? <laughs> well actually in 2019 I was trying to go to less. In 2018, so I probably went to more in 2018 because I realised I was going too hard and too fast sometimes because one of the key concerns is, and I think everyone will be familiar with this, this imposter syndrome it's sometimes referred to because I'm still new to art as I see it. You know, I came to it late in life while, say, a 25-year-old who grew up in an arty family will have much more art knowledge potentially than I do. I always feel like I'm trying to play catch-up So it almost feels like I have to go and see as much as I can. And to really get your eye in, I still think you need to see works that you don't like and you don't gel with because that's how you understand what works for you. I remember reading a great review by the film critic Mark Kermode where he was talking about a film that he didn't like. He had given this a poor review. And in his review, he talks about this is something he picked up on his second viewing of it. And I thought to myself, hold on. You didn't like a film and you watched it a second time just to make sure you didn't <laughs> like it. And I thought that's the kind of attention to detail that really makes him stand out from other film critics. And I want to make sure that I see everything and I give everything a fair chance. I think that's a very respectful way to approach art as well. Um, and I like that you said that. And I want to make it clear to the viewer as well. This isn't something, I mean, you mentioned imposter syndrome, but, you know, uh, Tavish is living his life in art. His shirt right now is so bright and colourful. <laughs> Just as you can't, this is an audio platform, but my goodness, it's, uh, he, he's in it for real. As you mentioned, your ethos is about making art accessible. So what is your opinion on diversity and accessibility as well do you have an opinion on on that it's a very relevant topic at the moment yes definitely and I think it is important that art is more diverse because the more diverse it is the more opportunities there are for everyone so I think it's a win-win I mean one thing that really bothers me is that you go to say the openings of art exhibitions which are often called private views never understood why they're called private views when a lot of them aren't private like anyone can walk up but you know, that's one sense of elitism. But also, I've been to private views, let's say, just off Brick Lane. For those who aren't familiar, Brick Lane is the heart of the Bangladeshi community in London. And then the opening will be all white persons. 
or you'll go to Brixton and then once again it'll be all white person even though Brixton has a very large black population so it's this thing that is art at the moment very much feels white and middle class mm -hmm. um, I'd also add that it's not just diversity in terms of race and gender which are obviously very important but it's also sort of diversity of thought so the the joke I always make about the thinking in the art world is that a curator at a large museum or institution um, who studied art history at the Courtauld Institute, mm. decides to put on an exhibition, then passes it on to a member of a press or PR team who also studied art history at the Courtauld, who then pitches it to a bunch of journalists who all studied art history at the Courtauld. Yeah. Now, there's no, nothing wrong with the degree. The degree is a very good degree from a very good institution, but if they're all from the same place, then it doesn't even matter what they look like. They're all gonna, they're largely, to a large extent, they're gonna think the same. And that's also a difficulty. And I know that there's been a lot of work in the corporate sector to get rid of this kind of Oxbridge bias where people with Oxford or Cambridge on their CV get seen as being more capable than someone who doesn't have Oxford or Cambridge. And I think the same thing in the art world where you've got cliques from certain backgrounds and the, the more we can do to kind of break those down so that everyone can access the art world, the more it will naturally become diverse in terms of race, gender, country of origin and also you know how they got into art you know people like me who came from outside art will be not seen as an outsider but just part of the norm yeah absolutely and i think um making art accessible and less intimidating is a huge part of that as well so i fully stand behind what you're saying i completely agree with you it's a huge problem we have in the art world and it's about time that we tackled it Okay, let's talk about the ING Discerning Eye Open Exhibition. It is a yearly exhibition, and this year you are going to be judging. Very exciting. Can you tell us about the exhibition? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so it's an exhibition that very much chimes with my philosophy about making art open to everyone, accessible, and people can appreciate it. So I have a unique approach to selection of the artworks, which is that they pick six people. In this year, it's two collectors, two artists, and two critics, including myself. Um, and we all get to pick our own selection based on the artists we know and also from those who submit to the open call. So it's a nice mix of artists we're familiar with and artists we don't know about. But also, hopefully, our six tastes will introduce the viewer to different artists that they weren't aware of. So if we look at the judges, I mean, there is diverse as the singer Beverly Knight, who is a collector of art, and my good friend Joe Baring, who is a director of the Ingram Collection, which is a collection of artworks, and she's also a fellow trustee of mine at ArtCamp. So I'm hoping that everyone will have very different tastes and we'll all get to see what, um, what goes on each person's wall. Though I'm not entirely sure what actually happens if in the open selection two of us want the same artist. I don't know yeah, that's have interesting. To... I'll ask the committee, maybe we have to fight it out. I don't know how it works. Oh, I hope so. That'll be fun. <laughs> <laughs> this year is obviously a little bit different and we'll go into that in a second because it's going on mm. as a virtual exhibition, but it's always been small pieces of artwork. Is that right? Yes, it has. And I think that was from a practical perspective because, you know, when you've got a space and each selector has got a hundred works where you can't have them two metres by two metres each, mm. I suppose going online, that's no longer technically a constraint but given that they want to keep some sense of normalcy to this exhibition and make it similar every year mm -hmm. i can see why they've stuck with the same approach because then it feels like 
yes, we're online for an obvious reason, but at the same time, we're still sticking with our initial goals and aims of the exhibition. Awesome. Do you know how many you get to choose at the end of this? Is it, is it somewhere up to 100 you mentioned? Yes, I think we aim for 100. I think if you end up with 101 or 99, I think they'll, they'll allow it. But at least 25% have to come from the open call because obviously a lot of people have submitted their works and they should have a fair chance of being in one of our selections. Yeah, absolutely. There are prizes for this exhibition as well, right? Is that... Yes, there are quite a few prizes um, that differ by things like what medium the artist has used. There's also a mentoring prize. There's the overall purchase prize of £5,000. So there are different judges for each one. So we're the ones responsible for selecting, but there'll be different judges picking the prize winners. So you get a lot of perspectives into one. Um, So, yeah, it's, um, it's a great opportunity for artists. I always say to, you know, artists that when you are applying for prizes, assuming you the entry fee is something that you can afford it's always great to get your name out there because the more you're seen the more people take notice of you so I've seen lots of artists who have appeared in lots of different exhibitions that I've been to and then I've started to think well maybe I should be Mm. taking notice of this artist because I keep seeing their name popping up so it's great to get that sort of momentum and then once it builds it's it's great for an artist's career absolutely and 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 you know this is quite a prestigious exhibition as well i was i've got some numbers in front of me right now and i've apparently so three thousand artists have been exhibited more than ten thousand works since this show began and twenty five thousand pounds has been awarded in prize money and nine hundred thousand pounds worth of art has been sold that is those are amazing numbers they are. And that that's, um, serves to remind us of how important this prize is and what a great job it's done for promoting artists. And it's worth noting that a lot of the artists they would have sold would have been new to the collectors buying them mm. because they would have come across it at this exhibition and they may not have come across it organically. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, it goes without saying in the midst of um, COVID-19, it is so important now to support the arts more than ever. And so, you know, a really this is a really exciting opportunity. And I want to kind of put that across because more than ever, we need people to be talking about art, buying art, supporting art. So, yeah, absolutely. Is this your first time as a judge? No, I've actually judged lots of prizes. It feels like this year I've judged more than previous years. Um and I must, if for those who will be judging art prizes at some point in the future, I would add that it does get easier. You know? Right. I think when you first judge something, you're very anxious about it because yeah. it's worth noting that even when you're looking at hundreds of artists, each artist has put time and effort into applying. Mm-hmm. And it feels very almost rude to quickly rifle through all these entries. But the thing is, you generally are limited in time. So often you're just having to make snap judgments. And sometimes it's just a case of in a different environment, the work may have had more resonance with me, but in this one, it didn't or vice versa. So I think nobody should feel too hard on themselves. They don't get selected. It's more a case of everyone's having to make snap decisions and that's how it sometimes works out. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. I think that must take a skill in itself to be able to home in on what you're looking for. And I suppose that nicely leads on to my next question, probably one of my most important questions for the listeners. And that is what are you specifically looking for as a selector? Listen up, everyone, if you're thinking about applying. (laughs) Yes, well, I think initially I have to find something that speaks to me aesthetically, you know, because often, well, always it's the first image that you look at that really strikes you or doesn't. So 
you either look at the image and think, I like it, or I like it enough that I want to know more about it, and I want to spend more time looking at it. And that's the initial filter that you do, where you just get rid of the ones that just haven't hit you immediately. And then you do dig into it and look into it. So if the application has some text next to it, you might look into that to see what the work is about. Mm -hmm. um, but you also have to remain open to everything. I think, you know, I'm an art critic and I often get asked, is there a type of art or medium I prefer? And this may sound very purist of me, but I feel like if I did, then I wouldn't be doing my job as a critic correctly because I need to be open to everything. I mean, I've reviewed exhibitions on things like fashion and cars and video games. I've reviewed restaurants and theatres. You know, if you're not open to these things, you can't really do those subjects justice. So I feel like I always go in open-minded, but then, you know, you we're all human. We all have our preferences and you can't avoid those altogether but you try your best to be as open as possible and the other thing I want to do especially in my own selection is mix up established artists and emerging artists because you know it's good to have those two next to each other and also people are buying yeah. and if you've got artists who you know sell for an affordable price range I think that's better for the potential buyers to know here's an artist who's quite early in their career and I can snap up a good deal here and then potentially the artist will be worth that more but more and sell for more in the future yeah absolutely and and that's another thing you know it's a huge opportunity you know we, we mentioned not just to make money and win prizes but exposure it's really big deal for that are you hoping that your your mini exhibition so as we mentioned each judge is sort of has their own mini exhibition which is really cool and you get to see what the other judges have chosen on the day is that is that right yes so i won't have a clue what the other judges have selected until i see it in the <laughs> in the virtual flesh as it were yeah so it's great to see what other people have selected because it'd be interesting you know when i go through the open selection maybe i'll think oh that's an artist i passed up and someone else has said no i want them in my so yeah it'll be very interesting to see what everyone's taste is like but i love the fact that that's when you think about art, it's there is obviously a degree of talent in terms of making the art, but it's one of the most subjective art forms. Mm. You know, when you go to like a film, generally there's agreement as to how good that actor was or how how much the plot made sense or how good the effects were. Yeah. But with art, there's almost a hundred percent subjectivity. So yeah. 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 I mean, I you know what, it sounds really odd, but People say, oh, well, you're a critic and you review things and you give a rating. You might say it's a good exhibition, you might say it's a terrible exhibition. And then people disagree with you. As long as the people who disagree with me aren't obviously abusive. Um, I don't mind disagreement. I'm very happy. Yeah, I'm very happy. I mean, often the team at Londonist will tell me they will disagree with me on my review. But I love that. I love the debate. I love having a debate with someone about why they think something's not as good as I thought it was or vice versa I think it's just you know it's part of what makes life interesting and if we didn't all have different opinions then you might as well go ahead and replace all journalists with robots right you, you know that's the whole point yeah that's a very valid point hmm. when you're taking yourself away from your own sort of preferences and trying to be objective in that arena I think that's your way of being democratic in some ways right yes and I think that's why we were talking earlier about my title of the people's art critic which was given to my to me by my colleagues at Londonist. Uh, I'll call you now from now on. Yeah. 
<laughs> well, it's, a, it's, a, it's a very flattering title, but I think it's because I do have one word, one foot inside the art world, one foot outside. And I can kind of cut through that sort of very sort of elitist language that we often see used in, you know, in the art world. I will never use ontological in one of my reviews uh, or transcendental or something along those lines with all these terrible fluffy words that they use. And also I want people to feel comfortable going into exhibitions. You know, one of the worst things is going to an exhibition where you have to like press a bell and then like a camera light shines in your face, then you're let in and there's a desk and the person behind the desk doesn't make eye contact with you. Mm. And then you're left to wander around the exhibition itself and show yourself out. And it, it just, you can understand why people feel intimidated because that feels very intimidating. You know, if you, yeah. you press the bell and somebody just says, yes, yeah. the first like, thing you might be thinking. Like a guest in someone's dinner party. It's like, oh, I shouldn't be here at all. <laughs> No, and don't get me wrong, it's not just art. I mean, if you went to a designer fashion store, it's very similar, you know, with the big bodyguards and the, they yeah. look at you like you're not dressed right to be here. Yeah. But there is that sense of elitism, and I don't like the fact that even though art is free, we're talking about movies versus art, well, movies you generally yeah. have to pay for. Yeah. Art is free, and yet still so many people don't engage with it. Absolutely. Do you suspect uh, ahead of time that your selections will be very eclectic? I think every other selector, and I might be putting words in their mouth, so I might have to take <laughs> these words back afterwards, will have thoughts about making the collection come together as a whole. So it may have a certain theme to it, a certain feel to it. Mine will not. Mine will be all over the place. And that's how I like it. I mean, I like if, you went, yeah, if you went to my house, I mean, you can see a part of it in the, on the screen that you can see, Anna, is that it is just a mix of every kind of artwork. Yeah. And that's how I like it. I feel like I'm not wedded to a particular kind. Now, we mentioned that this isn't going to be a virtual exhibition in the typical style of 2020. Up until now, it has been a physical exhibition. Can you tell us about the new setup of how it's going to work? Yeah, so it will be online, an online platform, so everyone can visit it. I mean, to some degree, that is more democratic because, you know, when the exhibition is held in London, you have to be in London and in that area of London to visit it. We have to make plans for it. Well, online, anyone can access it. And that's not just people who can't travel, people with mobility issues, people who don't feel safe traveling just now. So that's great. And then obviously, one of the beauty of exhibitions is there is a social element, which you can't really do in today's world for obvious health reasons. So it'd be nice that you can have sort of private views and opening nights online. And hopefully lots of people will, will join us for those and then we can, um, yeah, we can all experience it on screen at the same yeah. time. What dates are the exhibition running to and the submission deadlines and all the, you know, important things we need to know? Yes. Yeah, so entries close for the Discerning Eye exhibition on the 1st of October. That's when all artists need to apply by. And then the exhibition itself will run from 18th November to 31st December, which is a longer run than it would have had if it was in a physical space. But obviously you don't have to worry about getting the works to the space and shipping them back. And, you know, obviously it's running over Christmas Day. You'd have to wear staffing Christmas Day, you know, because <laughs> online it doesn't have to be staffed. Uh, yeah. So those, those are the great opportunities you get from being online. Mm, absolutely. Fantastic. And, and the works are available to purchase. Are they all, all available to purchase or some? Or? Well, well, that's the plan. So every work that we're selecting, the rules are it has to be available to purchase. Um, so it's great for anyone who's looking to 
buy some art. Um, and obviously it's small because if that's important because if you look at my two bedroom flat, there's barely any wall space left. So buying small works is great because they can fit anywhere. Uh, but, um, but it's also lovely in the sense that, you know, it could be posted out to you during lockdown and it's, um, yeah, it's a nice opportunity to get your foot in at the bottom of the ladder because small works tend to cost less as well for obvious reasons. So yeah, I think it would be a great opportunity to make your first purchase or to continue to grow your collection. That's exciting, though, that there's a huge sort of range of prices for entry level to you're talking, you know, the, the big bucks. I think, again, feeds into the idea of it's an exhibition for everyone, really. Mm. Even if you're not looking to purchase, of course. Uh, now, I've got a big question. Now, I um, it's probably an obvious question, and I'm sure you get asked this lot, but coronavirus has massively contributed to pushing art sales online you know we've seen this across the board do you think that this is the way that things are heading permanently do you you know do you see the sort of trajectory being just online now i think coronavirus has accelerated a few things and one of them was the general movement of art going online i think art was heading online anyway and this has just accelerated it so what we're now seeing is people feeling more comfortable to buy online. So you have the artist support pledge. So for those who didn't know, this was a hashtag where anyone could share a work up to the value of 200 pounds and you could buy it online by just searching the pledge. And it generated millions mm. in sales. And I think it's great. I spent loads of money on it. I was one of the few people who spent more in lockdown than otherwise <laughs> because I bought so many works. I like that. I like that a lot. Yes. Uh, but also, yeah, generally we're seeing even the bigger end of the markets with like art fairs are going online, the big art fairs, and they're still selling mm. online. And, and the other beauty about being online, and we've mentioned the word democratic a lot, is that it is very democratic. Before you had certain gatekeepers, sometimes they were critics, but often they were galleries. Mm. If you as an artist couldn't find a gallery to show with, you couldn't find an audience. And that was it. You know, you couldn't make a career out of it. Now, thanks to things like Instagram, with all its flaws, it does allow people to reach a wider audience. So, you know, you don't need a gallery to be successful as an artist. We don't necessarily need one. Yeah. And I think that's beautiful about it, that it is becoming more democratic through online access. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what about you, Percy? What have you got, apart from obviously judging this exhibition, which is going to be very, I'm sure, time-consuming and very exciting for you, what other projects have you got going on at the moment and where can listeners go to find more about you and what you're up to? Yes, well, unsurprisingly, during lockdown, I've been available for a lot of online talks. I've been giving a lot of those. Um, I'm still writing and now starting to gingerly get back out to galleries and museums and visit them. So if people want to find out about what I'm doing, the best ways to find out are through Twitter and Instagram. My handle is at London Art Critic. Um, you can find my website, which is tabish-khan.com. Uh, you can visit londonistlondonist.com and fadmagazine.com. And there will be all my writing for people to see. Fantastic. And I'm going to repeat the important information about the exhibition once more again. So if you are listening and you want to apply or you know someone that you think should apply, the dates are the 1st of October is the deadline to submit your work. And then the exhibition runs from the 18th of November until the 31st of December. And where can listeners go to to submit? Is there an online platform? I assume there is. <laughs> yes, there is. I mean, discerningeye.org, so discerningeye1word.org is the website. But if you actually google ing discerning i 2020 the first link is to the application page so that's even better 
nice and easy. Like it. Tavish, thank you so much for talking to me today. It has been an absolute pleasure and uh, and yeah, and I want to buy your shirt. <laughs> thank you. It's not for sale. <laughs> So there is Tavish Khan. We had a really, really lovely time chatting, actually. Before the interview, we were laughing because he was saying how he loves the fact that his nickname um, that he's been given is the People's Art Critic, but he <laughs> said he could never introduce himself as that, which was so funny. He's, he's very, very humble about it. But it is a title he likes because he is all about making art accessible, and we really, really aligned on our ideas about that too. So, um, yeah, wonderful, wonderful chatting to him. And if you would like to enter the ING discerning eye open exhibition please make sure you do so by the 1st of October it's coming up I can't believe that it's nearly October already but alas it is um that is unfortunately all we've got time for but thank you so much for listening to Art Then and Now with me Anna Gammons and see you next week on Resonance 104.4 FM bye